Good morning. My name is CJ. I am the InterVarsity staff worker at JMU. InterVarsity is one of the campus ministries. Um, I had the opportunity to share with you guys, uh, I guess it was Good Friday, this past spring. And I shared with you a story of a student who had come to me um, needing to confess some things that he had been struggling with, um, basically hooking up with, with girls, and uh, was deeply distraught about that. And uh, I shared with you how I kind of shared the gospel with him, and he kind of came to some realizations of some things that he needed to repent of. Well, three months later, he was still struggling with those things. This was, uh, I think, it was late June, and he just had a, a total breakdown. Uh, the cool thing about his breakdown was that he had this breakdown uh, in his apartment with non-believing friends. So he lives with non-believers, three non-believers, and himself. And his non-believers were kind of taken aback. Uh, non-believing friends were taken aback that he would, one, share this openly, uh, about what he was struggling with, uh, that he would be as emotionally vulnerable as he was, as well as socially vulnerable to present some of this information. Um, and the guys, his non-believing friends were so overwhelmed that they were like, we think you need to go home. Um, so they're like, we don't want to deal with this. And so just go home. So he did. He went home. He went home to Richmond and ended up having a great summer connected with the Lord, um, has come back to school and has just really been alive to God in ways that he never had before. And his non-believing apartment mates are now, two of them, are now really waking up to the work of God in their lives. And they point back uh, to, we'll call him Brian, to Brian's openness and trust and vulnerability, willingness to show who he was. So one of these guys, I'll call him David, has been coming to some of our large group meetings and has gotten involved with an InterVarsity small group. And David asked me if we could get together this past week, so I got together with him. He's like, I think God wants me to be more religious. I was like, oh, I was like, well, what do you mean? Because <laughs> that made me cringe. Um, and so he, he kind of started saying, I, 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 basically, he wants what Ryan wants. Brian, sorry. Uh, um, but he, he wants what Brian wants. And I was like, wow, this, well, that's not religion. And so I got to share the gospel with him. And we walked all the way up to the foot of the cross. And um, I didn't want to pressure him into praying a prayer. It's, it's, it's not my temperament. Uh, so I gave him some direction and encouraged him to uh, talk to God. Now, I share that story not to uh, pat myself on the back or to uh, promote InterVarsity per se, uh, so much as to say that there's something about college life where people live together in close proximity that allows for God to do some things among neighbors that tends not to happen in adult life. One of the great advantages of the campus is geography. That people pass each other, the same people go to the classes, you pass each other at the exact same time every day you see each other. You go to the same dining facilities, you live in this really tight building with tight quarters, and you can't help but know the people around you. I think one of the great weaknesses of the church in America is that we will drive 20 minutes to be in a home group with people that if we didn't have cars, we wouldn't know otherwise. Meanwhile, we leave behind the actual people who we do live near and don't engage with them and don't open our lives to them. We don't know how necessarily to love our real neighbors, those who are right next door to us. And what happens eventually is that the church is left trying to find evangelism programs or some way to reach out, and um, we're looking for some kind of a, a better technique or some better angle or better approach. All the while, God's just looking for better people who will love their neighbors. 
And so this morning, I'd like to talk a little bit about what does it mean for us to actually love neighbors? Not to come up with some new uh, program that the church can run, but really just to take a look at the second greatest commandment that says, hey, love your neighbor. They're right next to you. Now, Dallas Willard, he's a was a professor at UCLA, I believe. Uh, he defines neighbor as anyone near enough to you, or what he would say is within effectual proximity, anyone near enough to you that you can cause an effect upon them. So Dallas Willard would say that everyone in this room is your neighbor. Uh, we, I can cause an effect on you right now. And, and that's, a, that's a good enough definition, but I think it gives us too much wiggle room to say, well, then the person next door to me isn't my neighbor because I kind of love somebody else today. And so, and so I, I'd rather us tighten down the definition of neighbor and just say it's the person who lives next to you. Now, if you're one of the farm dwellers uh, here, which I know we got a couple of them, um, be reminded that the word neighbor comes from German and it means a nearby farmer. So, uh, so you, don't, you don't get out from underneath this. Uh, so to love your neighbor. So uh, I guess I, I've been in my house for almost four years now, the, the house I currently live in, and it was in the summer of my first year in the house, uh, there was an InterVarsity staff worker from Uganda who was touring around the country, and I got an email saying, hey, this guy wants to pass through Harrisonburg. Would you be able to host him? I was like, sure, I'd love to. Um, and this guy, I was on the end of his journey. He had started in New York, had gone up to Chicago, gone out to Seattle, down to San Diego, through Texas, and was coming back up to fly out of New York. So I was one of his last stops. <clears throat> and he came, and we were having dinner, and of course I wanted to know his impressions of America because, you know, I'm American, so I'm self-centered, so I want to know what everyone thinks about my country, and I want to tell me how great it is. And I was expecting him to say, your cars are fast and your roads are wide, and, and he said some of those things. But the, the thing that he said that, that really resonated with me, his, his big observation was, you don't know your neighbors. Um, I was like, okay, well, that's, that's probably true. And this, this, has, this resonated deeply with it. It was a real prophetic moment uh, for me because I had just moved into this house. I hadn't really met many of my neighbors yet. And here's this guy who's making a, an observation on American culture saying, you don't know your neighbors. Now, he had only been in these houses when he traveled around. He had only been in these houses for one or two nights. It's not like he had this intense month with somebody where he saw that they didn't know their neighbor. So his expectation is that within one or two days, you would be seeing your neighbor on this on these regular basis. Or perhaps he had an expectation that if an outsider, a foreigner, had come in, that you would call your neighbors together and host a meal to welcome. I don't know what his expectations were. But when he said, you don't know your neighbors, this has resonated with me ever since he said that. You don't know your neighbors. I was like, huh, I need to take this to heart as I've moved into a new home and begin to ask myself, why, why don't I know my neighbors? So I started looking back at my previous house where I used to live and kind of pondering my relationships with my neighbors. So there's this one family, um, so this is my house, diagonally over here is a house across the street and then another house. Diagonally across the street was a family um, that I, um, I didn't like them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the woman would frequently be out in the yard yelling at her children, yelling at her dog, screaming at her husband. Uh, her dog wasn't much better. He was barking the whole time. He was outside. So I, I kind of already sense that there, there's something going on in the family. There's some tensions. that it, It's like they're airing their dirty laundry, just spilling it out into the neighborhood. Like, I don't want to be around this. Um, well, I shouldn't have avoided it because it started coming across the street uh, to me. 
by way of parking complaints. So I, I work with students, and students come into my home a lot, do a lot of things out of the house, and students would come and park on the street. Well, in her mind, she was entitled to all of the curb in front of her property, which I don't know if she is or isn't, but she, she, wasn't, she in her mind, was entitled to this. And so when students were parking there, um, she started getting upset, and so she'd write notes and leave them on their, uh, their cars. Now, you know, it's a blue zone parking area, so technically, you know, you need a pass and all this stuff, but come on. Um, well, eventually those notes stopped getting onto the cars because I think she realized that these people were coming into my house, and so the notes started making their way onto my front door. Um, and you know, it's, it's comically sad, um, but I would just kind of you know, throw them away. Um, <laughs> and eventually, she started parking her car in front of my house <laughs> on the curb. Um, this is true. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, this woman became my nemesis. Um, I almost enjoyed finding ways to provoke her um, with, with these parking things uh, or just to see what the next thing would be that she would do. Well, the next thing was she called the cops. Um, and so Kyle Coleman and some of the, he was when he was a student and some other guys were over at my house helping me water seal my deck, and they come out from around back and they all have parking tickets on their cars, and she, and they had called a tow truck, hadn't they? Or a, a tow truck had been called, and um, yeah, I didn't like her, um, and there was no love lost on this woman. Um, in fact, I, I could honestly say I, in a fun way, hated her. Now, so that's this that's this family. That's her. Another family, diagonally across the street. I lived in my house for 11 years. Never met them. I'd see them come and go. You know, you peek out your window at your neighbors. And um, I'd see them coming and going, and I'd recognize them. And if I had a lineup, I could say, yeah, that's my neighbor. Um, But I never talked to them, never engaged with them. Uh, That was about it. That's my relationship with them. Now, the question is, to whom was I a better neighbor? The one I hated? or the one to whom I was passively indifferent. Ellie Wiesel, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, winner in 1986, uh, survived the Holocaust, wrote the famous book Night. Ellie Wiesel would say that I was a better neighbor to the one I hated. I'm not encouraging you to hate your neighbor, so much as to draw out the point that indifference towards neighbor, the current state, generally speaking, in America, of indifference towards neighbor, is horrible. In his book, The Town Beyond the Wall, Elie Wiesel kind of fictionalizes his own experience through the Holocaust. And uh, the story starts with him in the Jewish ghetto being taken out by the Nazis. And as he's leaving the ghetto and being drug out, he looks up and he sees in a window uh, that, uh, from a building that overlooks the ghetto, he sees a man standing there just watching, watching as all the Jews are herded out. And throughout the book, the image of this man standing in the window haunts Elie Wiesel's character. This, uh, I forget the name he gives himself in the book. But, and his whole agenda after the Holocaust is to find the man who is standing in the window because he wants to talk to him and confront him and ask him why all he did was just stand there. And this is a line from the book during the confrontation when he finally finds the man. He says to the guy, hatred implies humanity. 
It has its coordinates, its motifs, its themes, its harmonics, and under certain conditions, it elevates a man. That hatred at least recognizes the humanity of an individual. Hatred at least says you're there, I'm thinking about you, I'm pondering you, and it could potentially elevate me because it could move me to repentance. But indifference, just saying you don't exist, you're not there, uh, I, I choose not to engage with you, this passive indifference is worse. That the opposite of love isn't hate, the opposite of love is indifference. And I think at least for me, that the state of my heart towards neighbor tends to be one of indifference. You know, God gave us an entire book of the Bible on passive indifference. It's a little, little tiny one. You go home and read it in like five minutes. It's the book of Obadiah. It's one chapter. And the book of Obadiah, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, have, uh, they live in safety and kind of have this uh, safe haven where they kind of can't be touched by outsiders and outside armies. Meanwhile, the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, are being invaded and taken over. The, Esau, uh, the Edomites are thinking, well, we're, we're okay, we're safe. Here's what God says about their indifference. It says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. When you stand aloof, when you're indifferent, you might as well be bringing harm to your neighbor. Obadiah. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, CJ, you're just a really bad person. <laughs> you're just a horrible neighbor. I wouldn't do that to my neighbor. I wouldn't kind of laugh at their, their notes or just be passively indifferent. In fact, I know my neighbors. We're pleasant. We share sugar and flour and power tools, and we know each other. That's fine. I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. In fact, that's wonderful. Great. But God hasn't asked us to be pleasant or to be nice. God has asked us to be kind. Love is kind. Kind comes from this concept of kinfolk or kindred. We're supposed to treat people with kindness in the same way we would treat a family member, which means if a family member is in distress, we more move towards them to help. If we see something broken, we step in and we speak towards it. If there's something to celebrate, we celebrate with them. This is kindness. Not just a pleasantry exchanged over a fence, but an active involvement in the life of people. Neighbor. Love your neighbor. So I just want to throw out two thoughts. And um, how do we as a church begin to live towards our neighbor to love them? Not with some agenda necessarily to get them, to get them saved. I, I would love to see my neighbors knowing Jesus Christ. But um, how do we just start living out life the way life was meant to be? We're meant to know the people next to us, to engage with them, to love them. So what are some steps we could take? I'm just going to give out two practical thoughts. The first is hospitality, to practice hospitality. Now, <clears throat> I know that this church is really, really good at welcoming people in. Uh, I felt that when I came here. But hospitality is not cookies and milk or bagels and coffee. Um, hospitality is not a clean house. Hospitality is not necessarily a bed to sleep in. Now, all of those things are great. They're wonderful. They play a role. But really, hospitality is making space socially for others to dwell with you. 
So hospitality is making space for others to dwell with you. Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Hospitality is what you do with strangers. Can you welcome them in? It doesn't matter what you feed them. Can you give them social space in your life? The Benedictine monks had a bunch of rules for their order. And rule number 53 was that all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For Christ himself said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. So that, that means any stranger who presents themselves is to be welcomed as if it was Jesus Christ. Is that that person was Jesus Christ? No, think about this. If Jesus, someone's walking through the door right now. If Jesus, okay, it's just Zeke. If Jesus were to walk through the door right now. (laughs) If Jesus were to walk through the door right now, what would you do? I mean, this is how you're supposed to treat a stranger. Uh, We would probably be like, we'd be like probably trying to clamor over each other. After we got done the bowing and the worshiping, right? We would be clamoring over each other for his attention. We would be wanting to tell him the things that have been happening in our lives. Jesus, what have you been up to the past 2,000 years? What have you been doing? Do you have plans after this? Can you come with us? We'd be so invitational, so welcoming. We'd want him to be with us. There would be this social space created. That's how you're supposed to treat strangers. And in America, a stranger is your neighbor. Sadly, that's true. So do you... Kind of, do you do that? Do you, do you create space for neighbor? Not just for a pleasant meal, but I mean to kind of get into their life and to share with them your life, to say, this is what's going on in my life. Everything you would do with Jesus is the way you would engage a stranger. So let me, let me make this even a little more practical. Uh, the beauty of this room and the way these chairs are set up is that you guys can see each other across the room. You're not just looking at backs of heads, Right? So you, you guys probably, you probably made weird eye contact with each other at some point, uh, maybe even this morning. It's like, oh, that person was looking at me. Um, we do this so that if Aubrey starts prattling on too much, we can feel a little comfort looking at each other being bored. Just kidding. <laughs> we do this so that you see the faces of your brothers and sisters, and you see the people who are, you don't just see backs of heads. You see faces here. So I imagine some of you are seeing some faces over here of people that you don't know. You know what? They're a stranger. So treat them as Jesus Christ. We have uh, coffee and bagels after this service. That's not a social hour. That's not a time for me to check with someone to mentor some of the girls or to check in with someone who I loaned something to or to see what the next project thing is. It's a time for you to be hospitable, to make space for people you don't know. You might have been going to this church for three years. And you know that other person's going to this church for three years, but you don't know them. They're a stranger. Go say hi. Say, I've been going to this church for a while. You've always been here. I've just never said hello to you. I have no idea who you are. This is the beginning of hospitality, and hospitality is going to cost you something because it means you can't use bagel and coffee time for yourself to go catch up with your friends. Instead, you have to make space. You've got to push some things out of the way. And this is what God did for us, that God broke fellowship with himself on the cross God the Father turned away from God the Son, and he made space to bring us into his life. And he's asking us to practice this difficult hospitality of making space, of breaking fellowship with each other, in order to welcome in those who don't have a place yet. So we can do it in our bagel time. We can do it in our home groups. It's a little more difficult here, doesn't it? When I have to say goodbye to some people in my home group, because my home group doesn't have space for all of my neighbors, and I need to split, and we use the word plant, 
But I think the word split is fine enough. People say yeah, split such a negative word. And so let's say we're planting a new home group. We're planting a church. Uh, split. Adam's split. That's natural. You know, amoeba's split. That's natural. It's a natural word. Not to mention, yeah, I think it's okay for us to remember that there is a violence involved in hospitality. That to welcome others in, there has to be a splitting apart. That's what the cross is. It's a splitting apart of God the Father and God the Son to make space for us. I think split is a fine concept as long as we understand what we're saying in it. And ultimately, as a church, are we willing to split ways to to violently say, "I, I don't want to be apart from you? Jesus agonized over the decision to have to be split apart from the Father. It should be an agonizing thing to say this, the church has to make space. There's more people in our city who need to know that they're welcomed by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so we've got to split. You can call it a plant if you want to. I don't care. But I think split helps us remember the difficulty of it. So are we willing as a church to say we need to make some space? Are you willing to make space for your neighbor? Are you willing to love your neighbor? Hospitality, first thing. The second thing, then, is submission. Submission to your neighbor is not serving your neighbor. Let me explain. So I have an elderly neighbor. Her name is Audrey. She's wonderful. She's in her late 80s, and she's about the most active 80-year-old woman I've ever seen. Um, We're at a 4th of July picnic, and it started raining, and so uh, we were just at a neighbor's house, and so I held up my arm and said, Audrey, let me walk you home. So we, we start walking home and we get to the foot of her driveway and her, her driveway is kind of steep. And so I was like, all noble. I was like, I'll walk you up the driveway. <laughs> she's kind of feisty. She's like, I can get up the driveway on my own. And she like pushed me away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, just the other day I was out walking my dog and she was out in her yard raking leaves. And I was like, I was like, can I help you with your leaves? And she's like, no, I got it. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. Um, and we, we talked. It wasn't, she's not rude. She, she, but you know, here's the thing. Service sometimes can be a power play on our part. It's assuming a position of superiority over the person and saying, oh, let me step in and do this for you. When perhaps they don't need that or want that. Whereas submission is saying, I'm going to come in underneath your authority. And so for me, submission to Audrey would be saying, Audrey, could you teach me how to make that banana bread you make every Christmas and give me? Because that stuff's amazing. I'm allowing her to have the position of authority over my life that says you rule and you reign over banana bread recipes. And so I want to come in and let you have an authority over me. And in this place, you learn that I'm a trustworthy person and that I can follow you. So it's not just me triumphantly stepping in as as man, Christian, whatever my self-image is, who can make my neighbor better. But rather I enter in, as Jesus entered into our world, submitting himself to our flesh, submitting himself to our humanity, becoming one of us, learning the difficulties of being in a body. And so I would then say, Audrey, teach me to make this banana bread. Or, now I've been vision casting this to my neighbors uh, and, and to Mike and some other folks. We have, we have a, a neighbor in our neighborhood who has solar panels all over his house. And if um, uh, Kathy and, uh, I forget, his name slipped my mind. Charlie, thank you. Um, Charlie and Kathy, who are just totally into solar power because they love the creation. 
they would probably just say they love the earth. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think their motives are necessarily uh, faith-based in any way, shape, or form. But submission says that our home group would get together and say, these folks are authorities in this whole solar stuff. We don't understand it. But Charlie and Kathy, would you, would you be willing to offer a symposium for our neighborhood? We'll host it. We'll pull everyone together. We'll get the flyers passed out. But would you teach us what you know about all of this solar stuff? We got another neighbor, Patrick and Jamie, and he runs a landscaping company. Patrick, uh, would you host uh, and teach us how to do lawn, basic lawn maintenance? Uh, we'll, we'll gather the neighbors. We'll get them together. And so we as a home group start to think outside of ourselves that as a home group, we don't exist simply for our well-being. We exist for the well-being of the kingdom of God, of which we are a part, but so are our neighbors. And so how do we submit to our neighbors in the places they have authority? I was vision casting this to another uh, friend, Andrew, who doesn't go to this church, but is a Christian, so part of the kingdom of God. So I'm, I'm vision casting this idea to him. He's like, you know what also would be cool? There are some people in our neighborhood who've lived here their entire lives. They're like original in their house. We should get them to tell us stories of the neighborhood. He's a history professor. So he thinks in terms of like history. It's like, it'd be so amazing if we could gather some of, the ori- some of the original residents and have them tell us the stories of our houses. And this is starting to think outside of me and giving people places of authority where I can naturally get to know them and let them learn that I'm a trustworthy person. And Paul says it. This is the passage we heard read earlier, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Notice he does not say, To the weak, I served them and raked their lawns. He says, To the weak, I first became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. This is submission. It's submitting ourselves to the lives, the interests, the desires of our neighbors and saying, I'm going to put you first. Hospitality, submission. Paul doesn't equivocate. I do it so that they would be saved. That somewhere in our heart of hearts, we long to see that all men would know Jesus Christ and bend a knee and worship to him. That we aren't doing this just to be pleasant We aren't doing this simply to obey a commandment. We're doing this because we desire our neighbors to know the joy and life that comes in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're in a place where you are living in sin in a way that is unrepentant and you haven't turned your heart to the cross, I would invite you. We're going to take communion a little bit later. You're going to see a baptism. Let some of these things speak to you. As to what God would like to do in your life, not to oppress you. God is not the oppressor. Sin is the oppressor in your life. We should be clear about that. If you are living apart from Jesus Christ, sin is an oppressor. And like someone with Stockholm Syndrome, you have probably befriended your oppressor. And you have allowed that oppressor to become a partner with you in life. So that you think they're on your side and it's not true. It is destroying you. And so if you are befriending sin, if you are allowing that to be the rule and Lord over your life, I invite you to come to Jesus Christ and find true freedom, to find repentance. He isn't here to impose a law on you. He's here to make you truly who he wants you to be.
the unique man, the unique woman he purposed you to be before eternity began. And we get to ourselves through Jesus Christ. And then we have the great privilege of bringing his kingdom, of loving our neighbor, of bringing joy and peace and wholeness and life into this world.